Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the wide awake Teos Abadia. <laughs> hey, Teos, air drumming, wide awake Teos Abadia. I am ready to go. That's how I do it. I drum in the air, and I wake up, and I'm ready for a show. All right. We are recording a couple days early uh, to make sure that Teos gets to his destination on time. So I'm sure there is no doubt that at the exact time we would normally be recording, some huge news will drop, either a new playtest packet or something that revolutionizes role-playing games, and we will have to wait an extra week to talk about it. But that's okay. That's, that's okay. All right. Yeah. It'll, it'll give us a few more hours of, of our day to ruminate and come up with the best analysis of that news. That's exactly right. Yep. So it's really a boon. It is. It's a you boom. want us to record the day before something immense is announced. It's really yeah. the best. Best. Exactly. Topic. Exactly. Uh, first, before we get to our news and our main topic, we are going to go to our listener tweet bag. Uh, you know that not... name? It's yeah. catching on like wildfire. I hear it everywhere. I, I've heard. I've <laughs> I've heard that someone Grocery yelled at, at me the other day, and I. <laughs> yeah. And I was very very happy. I waved and smiled back. Um, <laughs> you tweet bag. Yeah. So uh, this doesn't actually come from Twitter. It comes from our oh. podcast website at uh, www.misdirectedmark.com. Uh, it's from Eric Commander. Uh, so Eric had a, a few things. Uh, I'm going to only pick out a couple of these things uh, unless yeah. you want to go back to it. The The one thing that Eric talked about was on one show we talked about not requiring a role as the DM if the task that the character is trying to do is impossible. And Eric gave us this bit of his thought. Uh, it says the suggestion that DMs shouldn't require a role if something is impossible is a bit pet peeve of mine. There's a big pet peeve of mine, sorry. Uh, the reason a DM might require a role is that it is often more appropriate and fun not to let the players know that something is impossible, or it may just be impossible for some PCs and not others. And I can understand this this thought. Um, let me give you the other side of this. And it's a sort of a double edged uh, coin here. I'm not a fan of, of making players or allowing players to roll for a couple of reasons. First of all, let's differentiate between what impossible means. You might, something might be impossible in a game because the character doesn't have the bonus that would allow them to ex reach or exceed the difficulty class of the check. So you need a DC 25 to do something. The character only has a plus three. So, you know, allowing them to roll. And even if they get a 20, they would still fail. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one impossible. The other impossible is really more what I was referring to. And it is in the world that the character inhabits, the thing that they even want to try to do is just not possible, not mm -hmm. mathematically, but in the in the fiction of the game. Right. I want to make so. a single check to pull up the supports of this bridge so the enemy falls into the bridge, right. into the water. That's exactly. not possible with a single roll. So Right. Yeah. Or or the supports aren't what I aren't what actually holding it up. So mm -hmm. that's more what I mean, right? Yeah. The player wants to do something that even within the fiction of the world doesn't make yeah. any sense. So let's differentiate between those two. Um the first one, the, the the differentiating between the fiction of what the character thinks or the player thinks can happen and what the DM thinks can happen. If you allow players to roll and just say, no, it doesn't work, 
you are not communicating to them something that you as the DM, that is your job to communicate, which is how the world works. So you don't want the players to not know it's impossible because there is a disconnect between their the player's understanding and you uh, your understanding as the DM. Communication is is gravely important in this game. So you want to make sure you alleviate any of those situations when they come up. Um, and that is, you know, some people, some DMs and even players love gotcha moments where it's sort of you spring something on the players and their characters. And, you know, it's sort of fun to to trick them. But if it's something that the, the characters would actually know, then you it's not so much fun as as you might think it is. Uh, so getting rid of those moments where there is this sort of misunderstanding is important. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I, yeah. I, I, um, and I am a person who likes rolling and I like players rolling. So mm-hmm. maybe this is a happy medium, maybe not. But um, my take on this would be like, let's say, you know, this bridge has huge supports on either side. You can't just make one check and pull the whole bridge up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what I might say is give me, you, you, this cannot be done, but give me a strength check to learn more about this bridge. And so mm-hmm. you make a strength check as a sort of knowledge check, basically, um, sure. or I might call for an in check, whatever, or a perception check, or I might call it for a strength check, but whatever I call for, I'm doing that because I want them to engage with the game, which is why I like people rolling dice. Right. So I might say mm-hmm. it, please engage. And I'm not saying these words, but please engage with the game, roll some dice, look up things on your character sheet, give me a number. And based on that, I might tell you about this bridge and why it's impossible, right? Yeah. And maybe some other possibilities, like it would take several rounds, or if you had an ambush, you know, type situation in an hour, you could totally do this. Or maybe it takes, you know, several checks at each support, which you probably mm-hmm. don't want to do. But if the whole party were set into it, they could possibly accomplish it, right? Depending right. on what I think works in the fiction of the world. But I like that kind of thing because it's a little bit of the rolling engagement, but mm-hmm. it's not at the player's detriment, right? It's not a wah right. at the end of it. It is a um, enabling thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also letting you know that the world has limits and boundaries to it. Right. And I, I think that's great. And I would even come back to you and say, don't don't force them to make the strength check because what if they roll a one? Now they don't have the information that you want them to have. Well, and and I, that but rolling, that's why I started it with, it can't, right. You don't think it can be done, but but maybe right. you can learn more about it. And so you'd say, right. no, you, so you roll a one. You just have this, you, you look around, these supports look enormous. You're pretty sure this can't be done. Yeah. End of story, right? You didn't learn anything additional, but the additional would be more about it, right? So that it, right. it, it can, it engages you a bit and can leave, leave you with more knowledge of why this impossibility exists. But mm-hmm. yeah. And then in the second situation where it's impossible because the character who's making the role mm-hmm. cannot beat the or meet the the difficulty class of the check uh there's nothing that deflates characters more or players more in my opinion than rolling something rolling a natural 20 and still not being able to to do it Mm -hmm. it just it does get the point across that this is impossible and it did give them the chance to roll but most players that i've dealt with enough you know i haven't DM'd for everyone in the world, but I've DM'd for a lot of players. They feel bad. They feel let down. They feel like they've wasted a natural 20. They feel like their time has been wasted. And so I I just, I, I understand that you want 
players rolling dice and engaged in the game. But there are times to do that and there are times not to do that. And one of the skills as a DM is to figure out what kind of players you have and you know what they want out of those roles. So if, you, if you're DMing for players that love to roll and don't care if they roll a 20 and fail, great, do it. Uh, but I would warn DMs about that. And it's better to just get the information out there and say, yeah. what you're trying to do is not going to work. Um, and you know that based on what yeah. d- what you're seeing in front of you. You know, one thing we see sometimes in adventures, especially around strength checks and gates or doors, but especially gates, portcullises, is this idea where you can you need a total strength score, mm-hmm. which can be your abilities, or a total number of rolls, like points worth of rolls to do a thing. It's an interesting mm-hmm. mechanic, and, and it has its place. I think that can be fun. But one of the things you can do as a DM is you can always convert to that. So if, if you'd actually, like, let's say the halfling, you know, decides to try to open this gate and they roll a natural 20 and they're, you know, three points shy of what would open this gate. One possibility is to borrow from that concept and say, you know, you're straining at this thing. You actually can see it budging and, and starting to lift, but it, you're just shy of what you need if someone else could help you. Right you know, the total of the, your efforts would, would raise it. And that can be a fun thing to do when you think it's a good idea that this thing that's impossible for the character, uh, but possible for other characters would be cool. Then you can allow that sort of additive benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can give them, you know, a little bit of a, a save on that situation, right? Where sure. Otherwise feel crushed. They feel like they're doing something. Yeah. And, and it all, again, comes down to players too. If the players are just, the only thing they care about is getting that open. Mm-hmm. Then just give them the information. If if there's role playing and storytelling involved, and they're yucking it up because the fighter couldn't, but the dwarf, you know, but the weak uh, halfling character could, then play it out and and let the fun happen. Uh, but if it's just if it's just a waste of two minutes at the table, uh, just to get the numbers that you need to do this thing that really doesn't even matter in the long run. There's no consequences for. Yeah. opening it one way or breaking it down or blowing it up, then, you know, what's, what's the point? Um, mm-hmm. If there is a point for your table, do it. If there isn't a point, then don't. Yep. Fair. Cool. Uh, the second thing that Eric brings up is incapacitation. So we were talking about mm-hmm. uh, the incapacitated condition in the one D and D play test material. And uh, Eric says incapacitation causing disadvantage on initiative is relevant when you're incapacitated when combat begins. Sure. No, no argument there. That's what we said. Uh, it could also, is this, I didn't put this in. Is the stuff in parentheses what he said or what you're saying? I think that is what he said. Okay. So in parentheses, he says it could also mean that if you're incapacitated during combat, you have to reroll initiative and take the new role if it means going later in the initiative mm-hmm. order. Uh, it only means having to remember your previous initiative if the original initiative roles were discarded, keeping the uh, keeping yeah. only recording the order. So here, here's, right, I mean, we talked about all this. Here, here's my thing on it. How often are characters going to be incapacitated when combat begins? Uh, we don't know because we only have this very limited amount of material from the new play test. Uh, I have no problem with incapacitated characters getting disadvantage on initiative roles, but if it's never going to come up, 
then why bother putting it in as a rule? Now, if sleeping characters are considered incapacitated, then okay, that makes sense because that's right. something that comes up in games frequently if you run certain types of games. Uh, the other thing is I do not want to change initiative once we get initiative set. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't work well at the table. Right. For for some tables, maybe it's fine. Right. I, I don't want... I don't, the way I keep initiative now is I just do the one, two, three, four, five cards or tokens, right? right? So I don't even know what the numbers were. Yeah. And if right, I know, right. if, if I know monsters are going to be coming in, I yeah. might keep track of that. But otherwise it's one, two, three, four, five, let's go. Yeah. And, and I just find any kind of reshuffling breaks you kind of out of where you are and sort of in the excitement. And it's not the end of the world, but it's just an undesirable thing. Like in, in general, it's not a positive, right? It's not, it's never heightening your game to go, okay, wait, wait. Uh, yeah, Sue's going to go after Pedro. So let's, let's change that up like that. No, that you, no one just gained, right? No one's happier right. suddenly. Yeah. And, yeah. And so I just don't, you know, I don't think it's a thing that I don't think we need. Right. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, in, in the one D and D play test packet, incapacitated was a condition and then under it were several riders speechless you know cannot take actions or reactions uh, and then one of the riders under capacity was surprised and that was the surprised rider was the uh disadvantage on initiative checks so is surprised no longer going to be its own condition uh, mm. is that that this sort of yeah. nesting of conditions is something that I've never been a big fan of. It's like when you're stunned, you are also incapacitated. Right, you know, and right. then incapacitated is its own thing. For if you want a complex version of D and D, I'm I'm cool with that. But I just sort of want it simple. I want it. Yeah. You know, this means you can't take actions. This means this other thing. This means this other thing. And try to make make your consequences for, you know, saving, failing a saving throw or, or other things as simple as possible. Uh, and I, we're going to talk a lot later about sort of what all these conditions actually mean in terms of mm -hmm. game design uh, when we talk about classes. But so, you know, thank you, Eric, again, for your, your feedback. Yeah. We, we appreciate you listening and, uh, and giving us your, your ideas. Did you want to talk about Mr. Dave yeah, so, Rosser? Yeah, Dave's always great. He uh, uh, requested a video that we had mentioned where we were talking about, um, it's one where Mike Merles and um, Rodney Thompson are reviewing the D&D Next playtest, you know, sort of after it's done. And so mm -hmm. he was like, where is that video? And he actually found ones where they had done it at PAX, a very similar speech. But I hunted down the original one, which I think, I forget, it might have been actually Mike Shea who had shared it with me. But um but so in, in our show notes, you'll find the link to that. I also shared it on my Twitter feed. Um, and, and it's really fun because it's it's 2014 after the conclusion of the D&D Next playtest, but right before the books come out. Mm -hmm. And so they are revealing sort of what went well and what went poorly about playtesting a new version of D&D and things they learned and how they rate classes even, right? Which ties into mm -hmm. our topic today. So it's really kind of cool listen and... Um, and it made me think, have a lot of thoughts about where we are with, with 1D&D. 
and how that might shape up and, and, and just a lot of their lessons seemed really applicable, right? Where they learned to do things like, you know, challenge each other's preconceptions of what they want. Right. And then like Rodney would say, like, you know, we'd be arguing for something and we'd say it to ourselves, you know, and to each other, you know, are you arguing because this is what you want in the game or are you, are you arguing what you think is better for everybody in the game? Right. And we'd stop and think through it. And then like, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they, and they'd make funny jokes about, you know, like how they trick, you know, the person in charge by sort of saying like, I think you mentioned this at a meeting. So I, I did something based on that. And the person would go, Oh yeah, I like that a lot. And then they'd be like, yeah, you didn't come up with this. <laughs> like you, right, you actually exactly. said the opposite, right? Yeah. But, Cause we're yeah. humans, right? Humans are making games and, and, and just a number of things, you know, how they measured, you know, the Druid and the Druid's wild shape scored really low or the rogue scored really well, or, you know, what is a flavorful feature they're adding versus a complex anyone. So I, I think it's, if you're interested in the behind the scenes thing of, you know, one D and D, this is a mm -hmm. good way to get some perspective on it. Really cool video. Yeah. And, and of course that's one team that made a version of D and D. Now there's a completely different team. Well, not completely different, but you know, different, different individuals in different roles, yeah. uh, making this new game. So, uh, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. And that's just one sort of data point that we can look at along the way. Awesome. So let's get into our news and commentary uh, portion of the festivities. Now, the first thing I wanted to bring up was a Polygon.com article that covers the future of third-party uh, third publishing in D&D. Uh, it is entitled The Fork in the Road Facing Third-Party Tabletop RPGs. Designers say D&D's walled garden approach to indie creation can't end well. And I read this, and I, you know, this is obviously a super interesting topic to to you, Teos, and to me, you as a freelancer, and me as a full time employee of a gaming company that makes OGL uh, compatible products. So I read this article, and it was just it was interesting, but it was sort of all over the place. It was, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I I wasn't sure the point that they were trying to get at. I didn't agree with all the points, um, and really. It made me think, what do I want to know about third-party publishers and D&D &D and the industry? Hmm. And the, questions, the question that gets distilled down for me is, does the existence of the open gaming license and third-party support for D&D &D benefit or hurt Wizards of the Coast? You know, is the money that other companies are making and the products other companies are making, does it help the wizards or does it hurt wizards? And the second question is, this is sort of goes back to the, did you want this for yourself or for the game is, does this uh, OGL or third party support benefit or hurt the hobby? Yeah. Right? yeah. Cause wizards and, and the game are two different things when you get right down to it. The, True. the, the game has a life of its own outside of what wizards does. Uh, and so these, this is the article I want to read. I want yeah, to read yeah. that sort of analysis and what third-party publishers can do uh, to fill the, the niches that wizards can't. Uh, and th there was sort of this, the article sort of had this, I don't want to call it whiny, but it was a little whiny. It was like, yeah. you know, Look at all of the things that we can't do with with something like D and D Beyond or uh, with uh, DM's Guild, 
right? We can't do spell yeah. jam or we couldn't do dark sun and we couldn't do. And I'm like, yeah, of course you couldn't because it's not right. your property. Yeah. And you are, look at all the things you are allowed Can to do. do. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And, and I understand the frustrations of, you know, having to give 30% to, to one bookshelf and 20% to wizards. Yeah. Uh, when you do I, use their IP, so. And if I can butt in here, I, I thought that this article struck a strange balance between saying sort of what Wizards of the Coast is doing bad with the DMs, with the DMs Guild is bad or, or confined or, you know, unduly harsh. But, hey, look, all these other companies are making their own versions of these sort of, as they call it, walled gardens. And it's mm -hmm. like, wait, but those are good? Like, you know, like, like, like I, I'm having trouble understanding the, the concept, especially when a right. lot of these companies' attempts to create a DMs Guild-like environment has often come with some really harsh criticism about the terms that these companies mm -hmm. have come up with. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that your questions are really good. And, and what's interesting to me about these is I don't know that... We can't know that wizards is actually asking these same questions in this, in the same way. Right. Right. Um, in that, when I think of the early communications about the DMs guild, a lot of it actually seemed surprisingly non-business speak and really mm -hmm. about things like we, we know the community wants to create, we want them to do that in a focused place that's for the benefit of them and the benefit of us. Mm -hmm. And, and that seems really fair. Right. It wasn't, yeah. you know, we think this is a valuable revenue stream. Right. Right. And in fact, if anything, what I've heard has been sort of, it's, it's not an amazing amount of money. It's not a critical right. source of money. Um, and, and that's actually great for everybody, right? Because it, it puts some money on everybody's table, not too much in any one person's place. Um, maybe, maybe one could argue that OBS makes a lot of money off of it. And that probably is true to some extent. But, mm -hmm. um, but it's, we don't know what their costs are, so it's hard to say. Right. Right. But, right. uh, but I think that, that uh, this question, this article's coming up because one of the things that, and I wish they'd talked about this angle a little more. One of the things that, that is really important is when you write for the DMs guild, you are locked into the DMs guild for that creation. You can't mm -hmm. take it anywhere else. And right. so if the OGL were to end, what does that mean? Sure. Right. Uh, if, if D and D were to say, you know, OBS, uh, there's no more, you know, could, could they say OBS, you can't sell 5e stuff anymore. You can only sell 5.5 or, uh, for 5.5, there is only a, a new location that we own where you mm -hmm. can have things, you know, what would that do? Like, to me, those are super fascinating questions that actually probably have a legal basis where Polygon could bring in a lawyer to break it down and analyze right. it. Um, I know a lot of people who have m made a good amount of money, had a lot of success on the DMs Guild, who no longer publish on the DMs Guild. Right. You know, why have they switched? Those are good questions to ask that mm -hmm. are different than the ones that came up in this article. Yeah. And right, those those other companies that have attempted to create this sort of walled garden, and I don't really love that term uh, no. in general, <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll use it since the article used it, right? Have they been as successful as, as the DMs Guild, no. even in terms of what the company that did it, did it was hoping for, right? Because like right. Call of Cthulhu, right? You can, there is a place where you can create right. and and put that content up. And yeah, it's, it's a very convoluted, complicated issue. Mm -hmm. And 
what I want, what I want Wizards of the Coast to do, you know, I'm sure they're there. You know, I'm sure the president of Wizards of the Coast is listening to our podcast. But what I want the folks at Wizards of the Coast, especially the business side of things to do is think about this deeply and and rationally and without bias and say, is the community better because of third party content? And I think the answer is yes. And I think if they look at it rationally, uh, the, they they will find that the answer is yes. And it's better for the company, and I think it's better for the game to have these options that Wizards of the Coast does not have to create uh, that are still available for fans who want it. So it's uh, it's an interesting topic, and we will definitely be keeping a close eye on any OGL SRD. Yeah business side of this uh, as we go yeah hey is wizards of the coast moving offices teos well i don't know but uh again dave rosser eagle eye that he is uh over on en world posted how he noticed that a washington news uh article announced that wizards of the coast has leased 110,000 square feet of office space in a new building this new building is still in Renton, so it's the same town where they are in Washington. But um, but it's hard to know what this means. Is this where the, are they moving to a new headquarters? Is this a second opening, maybe for one of like their video game offshoots or something else? Who knows? But uh, you know, and I don't know what their current square footage is. So I don't know if this is bigger than what they currently have or what. But right. I thought that was super fascinating. I wonder what what else this might portend. Yeah, you've been to their offices, right? I have. I didn't yeah. bring a tape measure though. No, no. Well, I mean, it's it's a very, it's obviously a very large building, but it's also shared with other companies yeah. and magic. And I think there's like a daycare center in there and, right. and, yeah. and all sorts of things. So uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. Just are they expanding? Are they side spanding? I guess is, is, is the, the, the word. Are they moving? Uh, yeah. Just, just an interesting little bit of news there. And yeah, you know, one of us is a big fan of Dark Sun. And I'm not going to say who it is, but uh, <laughs> his name rhymes with Mabadia. Uh, and yeah, nice. and uh, there's an online Dark Sun convention coming. Yeah, Robert Aducci brought this to our attention. Athascon nice. is coming. Uh, June Solar has been, uh, over the last couple of years, doing a lot. And um, they shared that they're creating this athoscon october 29th to 30th so it's coming up in a month and this is a there is a discord for convention discussion discussion there's also gm and player signups which are live already you can sign up for four hours of dming and you get this kind of cool a 3d set of printable stl files for a 3d printer and dark sound uh, these are of, of dark sun themed creatures and you also get virtual tabletop tokens that are dark sun themed uh, you can find this all on athes.org, the website, in the news category. And uh, and from there, you can find all the links to how you can sign up to the AthesCon Discord or the GM or player signups. Um, it will have, it, it is a, a online convention, so, so no physical presence. So easy for everybody mm -hmm. to just jump in and play some Dark Sun. Uh, they have a really neat poster. Can you survive the horrors of the wastelands? Keep hope alive. So. Right. Are they talking about Discord or Athos with with that? I think they're talking about my career. No, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Can you stand the horrors of Discord? Keep up alive. 
Uh, speaking of horrors, uh, GameStop has one D&D ring set to rule them all at a reasonable price. <laughs> um, this is a set of six rings based on magic rings and art from the Dungeon Master's Guide. It comes in a case of six rings with certificates of authenticity. Mm. Can you can you believe it? $39.99, only available at GameStop. So you can go in and get your set of six magical rings. Uh, you know, magic may or may not be included. Right. But they're cool. They look really neat. Um, and so, you know, if you're ever going to dress up, this is perfect. Or if you just want a cool thing, or if you wanted to give magic rings to your players and, and you know, at the table... I mean, 40 bucks for six rings is one of the most reasonable things I've seen in the jewelry department in ages. And they're nicely done, and they come out of the art, like in the DMG, there's, I forget which, I don't know if it's ring of spell storing, which it is, but it's it's one that kind of goes across two fingers, and ha mm -hmm. it looks like a scroll kind of curve. Just really neat looking, right? And so, so I, I thought that was surprisingly good. When I saw the pictures, I thought, oh, here we go, $360, you know, yeah. something ridiculous like that, but no. Cool. This is no sapphire ring. It is or sapphire dice, whatever they were that were super expensive. This is just forty bucks. Get it All at right. GameStop. At your local GameStop. Uh, finally, I wanted to give uh, a shout out to Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. The Kickstarter ended just a few hours ago. Uh, congratulations to Monty and Kelly, the Dungeon Dudes, for another successful Kickstarter. Um, you can pre-order any or all of the goodness by going to the Kickstarter page for Sebastian Crow's Guide to Drakenheim. It ended at just a scooch over $1 million with almost 9,000 backers contributing. And because it reached a $1 million for the first time, we at Ghostfire are going to be able to provide full virtual tabletop support for some of this content via Roll20 or Foundry. Nice. So very, very excited, both for you know, a fan of, of the Dungeon Dudes and as someone who works at Ghostfire to, yeah. to, Congrats. you know, to be able to, to start doing some new things there. With that, we are now going to get into our main topic today. This is going to be 5e revisited classes. So if you've been following us for a while, you know that we are many parts into our look at 5e and uh you know it's been 10 years now since the first public playtest of 5e uh was released eight years since the starter set came out so we're looking at you know looking at the game what have we learned what did what do we expect going forward into a new whether a new full edition or a new updated edition uh we've looked at races uh we've looked at you know, the game overall, and now we are ready to look at classes. Teos has been doing some digging into uh, what was said about 5e when it first came out or when the playtests were sort of in full swing or wrapping up. And one of yeah. the cool charts you have here is class satisfaction. So tell us about that. Yeah, I thought it was sort of fun in the presentations um, that they had mislabeled the columns. So I wrote it over here, hmm. bad writing, so Sean and I can look at it. But they, they look at the classes of how they were ranked by playtesters in October of 2013. And the Rogue has the highest average satisfaction. And they look at sort of two categories. Uh, they have combat, which is the middle column, and then non-combat, which is the far column. Um, and, and then they, they average that together. 
And so your rogue is the one that rated the highest, then the paladin, then the cleric, then the mage, the bard, the ranger, the fighter, the druid, the barbarian, and the monk at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. And and one of the fun things of, of if you watch that video that we mentioned is is you you get to hear sort of how they were surprised. Like one of the things they were surprised about was the monk. Um and they, they were surprised in a number of ways of how the monk ranked and, and, and also by the rogue, like the rogue, you know, has some complexity to it, but it, what it ends up being is complexity that feels very clean actually, and, and, and easy to master. And then you feel smart using it versus overwhelming you. And there were a number of things that they, they looked at. There's also a chart here on class complexity. Um, and so the mage was ranked the highest and this blew their minds because to them it was like, it's very simple. You cast a spell, right? That's your feature. Isn't that super simple? That should be the simplest right. thing ever. To which people said, <laughs> right. spells are complicated. I got to look them right. up. And... Yeah. Yeah. It, it, when, and it's true. When, you know, when you think about it, especially with the introduction of cantrips, the, the mage could be very simple uh, if you just, you just keep casting the same cantrip over and over again until you hit a critical point where a spell will come in handy and then you find the optimal spell and you cast that spell. Uh, but people, you know, in general, obviously found that the mage and the spells that you needed to learn, copy into your spell book, pay for or not pay for, right. All of that is more complex than I think they originally imagined. And so it's funny that they saw the mage as being a very simple class, but it's it was rated three times more complex than the fighter, which is seen as the the, the simplest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they did not expect that. And so the, the list in order of complexity is mage most complex, then druid, then cleric, then bard, then paladin, then monk, then rogue, then ranger, then barbarian, and then fighter. Uh, and I'm sure they expected the fighter to be ranked more simply. That That's not a surprise. Also mm-hmm. worth noticing that this is before they changed it to wizard. Um, right. And and just that spell lookup being the complexity, and it me- immediately made me think of one D and D's first playtest where they have all these spells for backgrounds, and right. you know from a designer, and we said this right, it's very simple. Hey, you get these three spells. From a player side, that's actually very complex. I now need mm-hmm. to look up nine spells if I have three different options for this race or ancestry, so that right. I can think through which do of these choices do I choose, right? I've got to do nine lookups. That's super complex, super paralyzing, super time consuming for a lot of players. Mm-hmm. From a designer standpoint, it's so clean because it's a level X at this level and a level Y yeah. spell at this level. And so, yeah, that it's interesting. It made me wonder, well, I wonder if they'll be learning, relearning these lessons at, at mm-hmm. the, you know, at, at Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. And so was there anything else uh, that that you took from, from this chart or from what you saw in the video about lessons there they've learned that they might be relearning or you know there was a lot uh, one of the two kind of high level things that they said one was how they talked about that it was really there was both good and bad to what you released in a playtest packet if you released a very pointed thing you could get really good data but very few people would participate because it might not interest them if you released almost like the entire game, like what felt like a whole base game package, as we often saw for D&D Next, that was got a ton of engagement, but it was harder to get people to give you the correct insight. Mm-hmm. And it sort of blew the, everybody's minds because suddenly the game was, was quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing they said was that when they were looking at the, when they got to the end of the process, 
they still ended up in, in several cases vastly redoing parts mm -hmm. of the game right and right. They, they admitted you know there's some things that just there weren't times to play taste we, we took all of the play test feedback we'd had and then we just made a new thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that didn't get right. play tested that and that's what's tested. in the book right because yeah. you just you, you you reach your your you know there's only so far you can go and you know that what you've got isn't that great and so you're just remaking it and we certainly saw that where the 5e book comes out and you're like wow this never got play tested this is maybe a little wonky you know and yeah. they, they admitted to that right Which I thought was yeah I mean, the publishing schedule sometimes cannot be altered for business reasons and so what goes into the book goes into the book yeah. uh where like, it's yeah, ready CR. For. CR yeah. was never play tested, right? And yeah. uh, it's one of the things that sees the most complaints from the DM side, right? Yeah. So let's talk about classes and 5e. Um, what the classes they ended up with in the in the core oh, book? Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Can I cut you off the one last learning? Sure, sure. When it comes to complexity, they thought players would want more combat complexity. Mm -hmm. Right. I want rich number of options to, to do for my class. So I feel really cool, but they found a very strong, very clear indication that as combat complexity climbed for a class, the combat satisfaction decreased mm -hmm. in exploration. It was the opposite. So, and they're what they thought, what Rodney Thompson was sort of saying they learned from this was during combat, complexity slows down play and has a chance to feel suboptimal because if you, you know, try a thing that you think is going to be cool and it's not, that maybe opens you up to criticism or you feel bad about having failed at it. So having mm -hmm. all these options was actually sort of a trap. Mm -hmm. Outside of combat, there's not that same amount of pressure. And right. having more options is more fun and you can take your time to think through them and try one and then try another. So that was the opposite of what they had expected with complexity. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to get back to that complexity mm -hmm. and time and, and effort in a minute, but let's, let's talk about the classes that ended up in the, in 5e, um, in, in the player's handbook. We have the bard, the cleric, the druid, the fighter, the monk, the paladin, the ranger, the rogue, the sorcerer, the warlock, and the wizard. Added later was the, uh, from Eberron, where am I going? My brain. Uh, the Artificer was added yep. later, but that, that wasn't and, a core class. And the Barbarian, which we covered last time. Yeah, of course. Yep. Uh, so, the questions. Uh, is this the right list of classes for D&D for &D edition? Uh, too many? Too few? I mean, I always, to me, because I loved it so much, I always wanted to see the Warlord. Mm -hmm. But this is a big list. It's not a small list, right? It's not like, oh, there are four or five as we've had in some editions of D&D. &D. Yeah. And I think it is super interesting that the only new class we've seen is the Artificer on an official level. Um, and no kind of third-party class, to my knowledge, has gained, you know, huge acclaim and widespread use, right? And so mm -hmm. I probably, right? It seems like this is a pretty good list to which subclasses then fills in the rest of what mm -hmm. you need. Do we need a sorcerer, a warlock, and a wizard? Um, I think so. I, I yeah. think that I think that if you, I mean, maybe you don't need them in the player's handbook, but I think that if you that you'll end up with one of them showing up again in another book if you don't put them here. Okay. Uh, it maybe makes things simpler to not have it here. 
probably the more logical one is you drop either the sorcerer or the warlock and probably the warlock, but people like their warlocks. And, and I think if you took it out, it would be a little bit like taking out the gnome for fourth right. edition, right? Where it, it creates a lot yeah. of negative conversation. And Yeah. Oh, let, can, can we differentiate between what people want because people want everything <laughs> and what's best for the game? Mm -hmm. Sure. It's hard to okay. do. What, what do you think? Uh, in terms of well i mean i'm going to look at it from every possible angle when i look at it right mm -hmm. i want to look at it from ease of teaching i want to look at it for ease of learning if you don't have someone to teach you i want to look at it from all of these all of these issues with the understanding that you know the hardcore player wants every option available to them at every point um i think you could get away with wizard and you can make sorcerer a subclass and warlock a subclass. Hmm. Um, the other ones, you could probably get away with making a monk a subclass of a fighter. Um, you know, in terms of what they yeah. actually do, um, because, and this is where I, I want to really, really shift gears. I want to just break this down to the basics of role-playing game design. Remove story from the equation, remove lore, remove flavor. Just look at it as numbers, right? Mm -hmm. How, how often should, what do the classes bring to the game, right? They bring to the game. And we, we talked about it last time when we, we went through the barbarian in detail, right? This is the main part of D and D. This is where, the main uh, abilities of, of your character come from. So what do designers want the game to be? Uh, if, if the game at its base is again, removing story, removing mm -hmm. flavor. If the game is hit points are the most important thing. You have hit points. The monsters have hit points. Everything that you do in the game mechanically is taking away hit points from monsters before monsters take away hit points from you. Sure. There are only so many things that you can do with a class ability. Yeah. And so I want the, the classes to do those things and maybe do those things in different ways and that be the main shtick. But then the question comes up, how often should a a class succeed on the thing that it's trying to do, which is generally take away hit points from monsters or keep monsters from taking away your hit points? So fighters, how often mm -hmm. should they hit? 75% of the time? All right. If they're just hitting 75% of the time, how what percentage of hit points should they be removing from monsters? Mm -hmm. Right? That's real. This is how I want them to design D&D. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want them to know these answers. Sure. Maybe barbarians only hit 65% of the time, but they Deal take away that. a higher percentage mm -hmm. of those rogues, right? Maybe hit 85% of the time, but they take away less damage except for in this situation. Right? This is what we're doing now, right? right, what, right. Do, what do bards do? Bards increase the chance that 
you other characters are able to take away hit points mm-hmm. from so they're bumping right. up those percentages and I, I that's what i want and for folks listening you're focused on the damage side of things one could also look at the defensive side of things and we'd, we'd have yep. a different conversation but this is the damage side of it yeah and you know what's interesting to me is i think to myself when i'm hearing you say this that if i were designing a different fantasy rpg i would absolutely want to do these things because mm. i wouldn't want my game to be simple and approachable and mm. and i don't want you reading the rule book, rule book forever so having you know sorcerer and warlock be flavors of wizard make super sense having the druid be a flavor of cleric uh you know maybe even the barbarians of a flavor of fighter um and the monk is also and then maybe the paladin is or the paladin's part of cleric or something like that like that allows you to very quickly have iconic feels they almost become your subclasses and maybe there are a couple of other subclasses but it becomes very um very simple to say that you know there are there are five classes or something like that mm-hmm. um the question i think with D is you have to sell additional books. And, and one of the things we see is when we think of player content, because you got to hit it from the marketing side too, right? From the player content side of things, or from, you know, well, selling book side of things, player content mixed in with other content sells well. Mm-hmm. So you're selling Fizzbands or you're selling uh, Van Richten's or you're selling Strixhaven. We see things like backgrounds and subclasses and so on, feats slip into those things, right? Dragonlance is going to give us feats and backgrounds. And mm-hmm. so when you do those things, um, you are making your your products appeal to more people. And so you need to have some notion of not just the, the design of it, but the, the design of it for marketing purposes, for sales. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think to myself, if you collapse these under the other, you are now, then it's hard to design those subclasses. Mm-hmm. Because you now have super iconic subclass like Warlock versus Sorcerer as subclasses. And yet you also want to say there's a certain subclass of Wizard, right? Sure. No, I'm I'm fine with having Warlock and Sorcerer be classes all on their own. All I'm saying is start from the base that I'm discussing Mm -hmm. and understand that base. So, you know, you could have a Wizard who has spell slots and those spell slots mathematically work out to something, mm-hmm. right? A, a first level spell has a hundred percent chance of hitting and it may do 10% or 20% based on the saving throw. And then you can figure out what, what the percentage chance of someone failing a saving throw is going to be. You can work that out mathematically. Sorcerer, right. we're going to use sorcerer points instead of spell slots. And, and I think, you know, if I understand sort of the history of, of 5e, what they sort of said was, we want combat to last four rounds, mm-hmm. right? Three to four rounds. And so monsters need to survive three to four rounds. So if you take the number of monsters you expect most fights to have, you give that a pool of hit points, well, that's the damage that must be dealt. And so then right. you work that, that. And then what you're saying is you apply these percentages to it. And I think you're asking a great question, you know, is the current team look re revisiting these questions right of, of the mm-hmm. foundation of 5e or are they right. just accepting it because to change it would be right challenging and yeah. of course this what we're doing on the show is we're we're not playing that exact game our game is a little more of like if we could change things what would we look at changing yeah. and how right so this is yeah. perfectly valid to say right go back to the math and see how it's working today right and what would and, you want and, it to do 
and understanding that underlying math and and the how long should a combat be and how long should a turn be in in a you know combat should should someone have to take two minutes to complete their uh turn even if they know what they're doing or 10 minutes if they don't know what they're doing um you know is that something that the game wants or do they want shorter turns and it's one isn't necessarily inherently better than the other it's just what does someone want out of their game right right if if turns go too fast you can get that repetitive i roll a die i miss i roll a die i hit i roll a die and that gets boring but Mm -hmm. sitting and waiting for someone to take a turn for 10 minutes where you have no stake in it right if there's no story involved there's no stake in it, then you're just, you're, it's dead time. Like, and, and, and this can be a very tangible thing. Like I recall when, uh, conventions, when we moved from third edition to fourth edition, there was this sense of at third edition, you would do your turn and you could go to the bathroom or go talk to a friend at another table or whatever, because there was very little you would do off turn and it's sort of nothing mattered, nothing that you did sort of really reflected the other party members with a couple of exceptions. Right. And when fourth edition hit there, I remember people talking about, I can't leave the table. Right. And I've got to pay attention to what you're doing because I might do something based on that or bolster what you do all of a sudden. And so all those kinds of reactionary type things were, you know, the interrupts were super, super interesting in that suddenly everybody was attentive, right? So you can change, to the point where people are talking about it, you can change that, that interaction right. at the table with how you frame your game. But right. then there is the question where, you know, fourth edition at the end of it, right? it was nuts. I mean, I remember one time right. where a monster did a thing and every single party member did something to block it. And some of the things were quietly ludicrously non-important and yet take up time they did. And yeah. the DM was just scratching their head and yelling at everybody because I can't believe you bothering to eat up right. time with these tiny little things. that Right. Are you, we're taking 20 minutes and then you get done with everyone's reactions or interrupts or whatever you want to call them. And then it's like, where was I? Who was attacking? Oh, right. It was the monster um, mm-hmm. who yeah. who was supposed to have been doing something for the last 20 minutes. Yeah. So, forgetting yeah, whose turn it was, right? That yeah. That is a great thing to check. If, if, you, if you suddenly have to go, wait, who was doing the thing that we're all responding to? That's right. a sign that you've gone too far in one direction. I think that's yeah. clear. Yeah. Right. So... The the other um, benefit of going and looking at these game design in terms of percentages, right? The Barbarian has a lower percentage chance to hit, but higher damage when they do hit, is that then you can find when some something gets way out of whack. Mm-hmm. If someone's hitting 100% of the time and doing 100% of the damage, then something has gone wrong in your design, Um and that's when you need to step back and say, what what do we want this class to do mechanically? And how can we balance that against what we want the other classes to do mechanically? And I, you know, I want that taken taken into a consideration both in the design and in the story elements of things about, you know, how how the classes interact with each other and with the story uh, that's being told. So, yeah. And and then you have to try to measure that all, you know, like how valuable is it that the bard buffs your two hit versus what the barbarian is doing? Or how valuable is it that the tanky character, the defensive fighter build 
will take full defensive, you know, the dodge action, and now prevent the monster from hitting and dealing damage. How does that compare to, say, mm -hmm. being the barbarian with the, you know, or being the fighter that deals damage? Like that's that's super interesting stuff, but but very good important things to ask because, as mm -hmm. you said, it teaches you a lot about what the game is that you're making. Right, and that's why something like being able to summon a creature or having an animal companion is such a big deal that often gets overlooked yeah. because now you have not only something that is lowering, uh, that, that is doing more damage to the, the monsters, it's lowering the damage that's done to the characters by being one more target that, that can be affected. And you know, we've seen yeah. over the additions how game-breaking all of a sudden you're summoning all these creatures in oh. and, uh, it, it changes the dynamic of the game, both in terms of time and in terms of, of the power structure of, of the game. As a ranger with a pet who had the leadership feat to have a druid companion with a pet. Uh, yes. yes. Who could cast summoning spells. Yes. Yeah. The, the third edition <laughs> druid, <laughs> the third edition druid with animal companions and then summoning uh -huh. creatures and then having special abilities to bring elementals in. And yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Druids and were soloing whole adventures. One last thing I want to say on classes before we look at subclasses, because th this will tie into that, but I don't want to go quite there yet. But just to say that 4th edition did a very clever thing of saying the quiet part out loud around what the role is of a class. And I think that even if you don't label it, it's good to know it, right? I mm -hmm. mean, and, and it's funny because video games borrow this from from D, &D but now we think of it in video games terms of, you know, are you DPS, right? Are you buff are you tank are you cleric you know are you healing like those kinds of roles are really important to understand of, of what you're doing with the class and and how players will see it right i mean bard is clearly seen as a support role mm -hmm. right clerics sometimes support but a lot of times heal and every now and then it's supposed to be you know the Stormbringer type warrior and so right you know does that get muddy and and that's a good question to ask of, of, of these mm -hmm. classes as you're designing them is the role clear and should it have flexibility yeah. third edition for example had clerics that would do more attacks per round than a ranger which was sort of the ranger stick or the monk's stick. Mm -hmm. they would do more damage than a fighter and then it would become like wait a minute this is you know, and what the party was actually saying is, could you heal me? And they're like, no, no, I'm casting righteous might. No, I'm <laughs> right. divine forever. No. Right. And, and, and that, that's the other thing is when you bring in resource management into it, if you have the, this, they should hit 75% of the time and do 20% damage you know, of, of a creature of its CR of its level, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, if you give them spell slots, then now you're upping that to 90% chance of hitting and doing 50% of the damage, but only four times a day, right? So now you're adding that level of complexity to the math, yeah. but it's still something that you can quantify and need to think about when you're designing these classes. Yeah. Um, and to throw in another layer of complication, um, like players want to do different things. Somebody wants to play the wizard, but they stand up in the front line and fight like a tank. So do you give them those options to do that? And if you do give them those options, what are they not being able to do in return? Right. right. And so instead of because they can stand there and do that, they can't 
do you know have a 50% chance of doing 20% damage to nine different creatures with one action right. uh right the fireball goes away and this other thing takes its place and i think 5th edition did a really nice job of keeping the classes from doing that whereas i think 3rd did not and 4th mm-hmm. did a really nice job of balancing things but to the point where it felt non unique to a lot of people right um Fifth edition did a very nice job of keeping the classes iconic, and then it gets muddy when we get into the subclasses, and w- which we're about to get into. And you, you, you said it right. What, what do the subclasses do? Uh, so for fifth edition, subclasses have handled things as we've seen. Right, you, you get a subclass. Sometimes it kicks in at first level. Sometimes at second. Sometimes at third. Uh, different editions have handled it different ways. Right, the paladin and the ranger for for AD and D were sort of subclasses of the fighter. Two um, yeah. E had kits, three E had prestige classes, four E had paragon paths, epic destinies. Uh, sometimes feats sort of acted as subclasses mm-hmm. if the feat got got wacky enough. Um, yeah, are you inspiring in, warlord or you know? Right, there were always choices, right? So there were these kinds of subclasses, and then you could further paragon path it and epic destiny it, and yeah. yeah. So, what do you think about five E subclasses? I, so, I mean, in in some ways, it's a nice piece of design in that you get this fairly iconic sounding class, but then you really get to characterize what type you are. Right, mm-hmm. the fighter in the player's handbook. Are you a battle master, a champion, or an eldritch knight? And you can play with complexity. So we see here, champion is the super easy one. You know, oh, your critical mm-hmm. range is wider. Uh, you do, you know, more damage basically. Uh, but if you're a battle master, now it's almost warlordish, right? You're kind of making mm-hmm. these tactical decisions and giving off buffs and using up points to to kind of spend on these dice that you have. Uh, an eldritch knight gets spells, so that's a different type of complexity. You're, you're getting this idea of I cast spells, but I'm in the front lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, from that perspective, it's very nice. But we've seen an explosion of subclasses, and it's been unclear to what extent. At, at some points, it's, it sounded like the D&D team wanted to do fewer subclasses. But, you know, eventually it was just whole hog. Right? We have, I don't know how many subclasses right. we have, but it's a lot. And mm-hmm. it covers so many themes that they end up, you know, really kind of even one crosses over the other, uh, where concepts of dusk or twilight or whatever can just, you, you can't even keep straight which one is for which class and how uh, they, they differentiate from one another. Uh, and, and some of the, the latest concepts are quite outlandish. So if we look at the tone of the player's handbook, it's very like everyday fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. The rogue is doing pretty obvious kind of roguish things focused on a very mundane, normal fantasy world. And later it's like, I summon tentacles from my head. <laughs> right? yeah. and, and, and so these subclasses become very, very fantastic and, and, and high fantasy concepts, which can be hard to add to any campaign. So it's, it stresses the system, I bet, even thematically, let alone with their power, <laughs> Twilight Cleric, um, mm-hmm. yep. that makes it dangerous. The other thing is, that iconic nature gets eroded where when there are now a number of subclasses for a number of classes that can outheal many clerics, mm-hmm. whether it's an artificer with temp yep. bots that go off, or it's a warlock that has uh, the ability to do a bunch of healing spells. Y- you can just, you end up out mm-hmm. healing unless you become a twilight cleric. 
Um, and, and those things are, are problematic, I think, for, for when players sit down and they go, oh, I'm a cleric, I'm going to heal you. And someone goes, oh, I'm a warlock and I'm going to do it better. Or, I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I took the feat to give you temporary hit points as a leader. And someone says, well, I can just have my little artificer bot do this and I'll be doing this all day long. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. And for me, subclasses sort of are a solution to the problem of I want to play something different than a typical blank, typical barbarian, a typical fighter, typical cleric. Mm -hmm. So I like that. And I like the fact that if designed well, they sort of fit the thematic role that multi-classing plays. Mm -hmm. You can do the different things, not in terms of sort of power gaming right. to, to do things, but thematically to, to yeah. do. And however, when you actually do multi-class with subclasses and you, right, you take a class far enough to get a subclass and then you take another class far enough to get a subclass, it, if you want to do it, great, but it gets very complicated and it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit too much for DMs to, to handle, I think. Especially because multi-classing is often about fishing for a particular ability that would make you very strong, right? And we've talked mm -hmm. about this on the show a number of times, you know, casting shield so that your AC can spike way higher than the class anticipated or the game mm -hmm. anticipated so that right. we break bounded accuracy. Um, right. You know, that is just a problem until you can just fish into a certain subclass if that subclass allows that option and that becomes a problem or even if the class does. So. Mm hmm so the another issue with subclasses in fifth edition is when they start so at some classes you get your subclass at first level right away right like a some, cleric and, and thematically yeah. I, you know i have my deity so my deity is expressed and chosen at level one right now some come at higher levels even though it doesn't make sense that they come at higher levels, because some subclasses are based on not your experiences, but sort of who you are. Mm -hmm. um, so you, right. If you, I, I forgot when, when do you get warlock or sorcerer uh, subclasses? I don't I play those yeah. a lot. Yeah, I'd have to look. But I think Sorcerer's they, a little earlier, they, Warlock's later. Or, yeah, no, if, the other one. If, Warlock, I think, because you, you're choosing your patron. Right. You do that earlier. But a Sorcerer is often like, in your blood, you are this. But you've always had that in your blood. So why does it take you to third level to... So story-wise, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Or for monks... If you are trained at a certain monastery, well, as a child, I was taken in by monks, right? That That's an old trope. And who taught me all of this stuff. So why do you have to wait till third level to pick the thing that you've been training for your entire life? Um, so I would love to see that codified at, into one. If it's first, make it first. Mm -hmm. If it's third, make it third. If it's 10th, make it 10th but have everyone on, on board with the same thing. So when you're teaching, especially, you don't have to say, well, you're first level, so you have to choose right now what that subclass is, which is one more choice a new player would have to make. 
Whereas you, you don't get to make it till third, where this other person maybe at second level gets to. Uh, it, I would, right. I would love to see that that codified a little bit. So sorcerer and wizard, or sorcerer and warlock, do it at first because the idea is that uh, this is the source of your power. Uh, right. But a druid, for example, does it at second, right? Because that's when you join your druid circle, right? And I think a wizard does it later because the idea is this is through a choice and study, if I recall correctly. So, but it, but it is, it's weird. And, and we saw with Strixhaven, right? Strixhaven in, in the playtest version, uh, on Earth Arcana version, they tried to say, hey, let's have everybody take a subclass that represents your teachings. But the classes are different, even for just spellcasters. And so they tried to initially play with, well, what if we, you know, bridge the gap in between what everybody's subclasses and come up with a rule to sort of try to bridge through this. And it got rejected with people's, um, choices, you know, people's mm -hmm. people pulled it poorly. And so they ended up removing that from Strixhaven, right? This idea that you would all take a subclass to represent what you were studying because it couldn't bridge that gap of subclasses being assigned in different levels. And so I would love to see that they are all similar. And I would, even if there is a thematic problem with it, I would want it to not be at first level because of that complexity, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I would love to see it. Well, we've already said, I would love to see, you know, picking things along the way. And if you want to start at a higher level, then start at that higher level and, and let it, let your experienced players start at fifth level, new players or players that want that sort of easier ease into the game experience could, you know, choose something at first level and then make the game easier until you get to yeah. that. And it's tough because as we've said many times, you know, campaigns don't go that long. And so we often mm -hmm. look at, at least in 5e, we look at a 20 level set of benefits for a given class, but we're probably not going to play all those 20 levels. And so it, it does become tough. But I think that, you know, if we keep level one as sort of, you can express your interest in various things but we're not getting features for them. And maybe that's the difference, right? You could describe what your patron is, but it's not giving you powers mm -hmm. and choices. And then maybe at second level, that's where that kicks in, right? So mm -hmm. describe your pact, but you're not bound to it and mechanically, or you're not getting, you know, a choice of three pack features or something like that. You know, maybe if you're mm -hmm. making a thematic choice, that's different. It might be okay. Yeah. yeah Bard college, for example, is at third. Right, just right. like the fighters at third. So it's just fascinating how they've chosen to do that. Um and I think complicates things, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I think it's it's not surprising that they do it because they they may try to balance classes against each other. So at you know, at first level, if you're super powerful at first level with just your regular class features, they don't want to give you additional things on top of that until third. Yeah. So it, it sort of, it makes sense. Uh, but it also makes it more difficult to manage characters yeah. that way. So, yeah. It also results in when people, when, when players level, which increasingly as the character, as their characters are leveling, it's increasingly because the adventure said to, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because you reached a certain point in the story that results in the level and you, you hear everybody around the table say things and, and some will be like, I got an extra spell. 
and someone else goes, well, I unlocked, you know, the thing of my whatever. And, and so it's, a, right. it's all different places, which is, which is another interesting thing. I don't know if that's good or bad, but, right. uh, but it is different, right? But it's, it's neither good nor bad, except for what the players bring, right? If some player is <laughs> going to be upset that they only got a, a one new spell and this other person now can, you know, immolate an entire village uh, because of this, it, it does lead to imbalance in that sense of, of the word. You know, the, the other thing on subclasses is that they, and we see this a lot when we've done book reviews, right? When we go through, through like Atasha's and we've reviewed, you know, what these various subclasses grant you is that the, the story you're trying to tell can only be told in a couple of steps, which then end up being only some of which you're going to actually get to play with, right? So like you think mm -hmm. of a paladin, and they're going to get abilities a third when they choose to be a certain type of paladin. Uh, and then they're going to get something at 7th, at 15th, and 20th. So for most campaigns, forget 15th and 20th. You mm -hmm. really are just getting things at 3rd and 7th. Mm -hmm. So for most campaigns, a paladin gets two points where the game rules get to tell you, get to reinforce the concept you've chosen, which is supposed to be such a huge, important choice, right? The type of oath I made. Right. And I only get two places to express it. And these can't be super all encompassing powers. So one of the things I wonder for subclass is if I were rebuilding things, I'd want to look at, could we have more steps, but they're smaller, mm -hmm. right? They're and, not and such meaty packages so I can have more remove, expressions of flavoring. Remove things from the regular class, right? The, the base class, remove things from there and put it into the subclass to make it. Yeah. It, I, I I like that idea. It makes it more complicated, uh, mm -hmm. more open for uh, you know disconnect in power levels, but it does reinforce that choice more. And and in that sense, I like it. So yeah. it's a tough choice, a tough question, yeah. right? Of how to how to do that. Um... And, and it would be a major redesign, although it, it could technically still be compatible. And I think that's one of the questions we have yeah. about 1D&D &D is, are, gonna, are they going to say that things are technically compatible, even though they're wildly different, right? So I could say mm -hmm. that, hey, in 5.5, or whatever you want to call it, 6E, 5.5, that we get, you know, everybody has subclasses at levels 2, uh, 4, 6, 8, right? You know, something mm -hmm. like that. And, um, and they're smaller benefits, but that in the end of it, a level eight, 5.5 Paladin and a level eight, 5e Paladin would be compatible in power. Theoretically, we can all play the same game. We're wildly different, you know, in a number of ways, but, uh, right. yeah. but we could be at the same table playing and having fun. Yeah. I don't know. How do people feel about that? It's a good question. How do people feel about that? Well, you listening out there, you let us know how you feel about that. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Teos, uh, for sharing your expertise as always. Thank you, Sean. And thank you to our patrons who are giving us uh, some of their hard-earned coin to keep us on the interwebs. Um, you can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, what is up with you in the social media world? Ooh, uh, you can find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can get to my YouTubes and my other efforts on Twitter. I'm at alphastream. How about you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can go to the podcast's Twitter 
feed at Mastering D&D. Um, you can also leave comments at various other places like forums at misdirectedmark.com, uh, at our homepage on the internet at www.misdirectedmark.com. Sometimes YouTube works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, you never know. <laughs> or you can just scream really loudly and we might hear you. Mm-hmm. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, we've talked about 5e classes. Uh, what are we going to do now? Let's go kill some monsters with a varying percentage according to our class. There you go. You're learning. I like that. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs>